Welcome to History 21, the podcast, a production of the Anoka County Historical Society, sharing the stories and audio journeys from our county's past and present. Hey folks, you get just Rebecca today. We are at the end of our ghost tours, thankfully. If you are listening on the day this drops, we are done by about three days, and I can't tell you how thankful we are that the dirge of October is over. We seem to have had a curse that was hanging over the museum for October, and let me tell you, everything happened, whether it was staff and tour guides getting sick, uh, whether it was being attacked by a spider, uh, the tornado that happened to hit our house personally, uh, the one day we found fly larvae in the phyla room. It, we hit everything, literally everything, folks. So October is a chapter done in our minds, and uh, Sarah is going to take a much-needed break in the next couple weeks. So hope you can send her some good vibes and maybe a couple thank-you notes for the heavy work that she does during the ghost tours and all of the ghost tour guides that brought in $25,000 to the museum this year. It is our biggest fundraiser of the year literally helps keep the lights on and the boiler running. So thank you to everyone who went on the tours, who promoted them, anybody who spent time as a, as a guide. Um, we really just appreciate your support and your continued participation in this program. Next year is going to be 20 years of ghost tours, and I do hope that uh, we can come up with something interesting and fun to do to celebrate that anniversary. One of the things I love about being the director of ACHS is taking advantage of the work that people did before I even got here. Every day that I work as the director, I'm filling a historical marker, and that work is going to go forward, and people are going to build on that work the same way that we're building on the work of our predecessors. One thing that I really appreciate about this organization is the time and energy they took to talk to people in the community and record those conversations if possible with the technology that they had at the time. But to take down those stories and make the memory stick, even if it was just a written account, those words last in perpetuity. So 40 years later, we can sit down and find this conversation that you're going to listen to on the podcast. And even though it's a little crackly, and even though it's not the best recording, it exists. And to think that it was a near miss that someone didn't sit down with a friend and have this conversation. How many times do we miss that mark in our world and how different it would be if we could make more of these recordings for the future? So I give great thanks uh, to those that came before us at Colonial Hall that they took the time and effort to make these recordings and do the programming they they did so that we have these gold mines that we can peer into and see people from the past. I hope you enjoy this episode. See you later, everyone. As an aside, in the following conversations with Arthur Donald Caswell, there are discussions of firearms and the sounds of gunshots in target practice. Today's date is Monday, February 7th, 1977. My father was away in the Spanish-American War, 
and, uh, and uh, three years later, we came moved to Anoka. I lived in Anoka at all times except when I was in government service or uh, in government service or in some cases uh, architectural work in Minneapolis. I've uh, served on the Mexican border in 1916. These pictures here are some of it. Uh, and uh, I, I also served in World War II. I was uh, discharged from the Army Land of the Naval Academy in 1918. And uh, then uh, came back. I worked at the uh, University of Minnesota for nine years in the heating and vacuum department there. And uh, uh, in 1924, when Battery B was reformed after World War uh, I, I was a second lieutenant under uh, uh, Chris Peterson, who was a captain, by Jocelyn as a first lieutenant, and uh, George Blanchett was also a first lieutenant. Uh, and uh, we, uh, uh, our first encampment was at uh, Camp Custer, Michigan, and the first round fired by a battery gun was a direct hit on the target. Uh, it was uh, Chris Peterson. Who was General Peterson, uh, is now deceased, uh, was one who uh, figured the data for it. Uh, the, B company, the B battery was an excellent uh, uh, military uh, organization. Arthur Donald Caswell came from a well known family in Anoka. His grandfather, Albert James, moved to the area in the 1860s. His father, Arthur Anson purchased the Anoka Herald with his brother Irving and ran it as an editor for two years. He was also a county auditor at the courthouse and served in the Mexican-American War and then with the local National Guard unit. The third generation Arthur Donald, who we're listening to today, was born in 1898 and graduated from Anoka High School in 1917. In his yearbook, it's noted that his nickname is Pete, which we'll use for the rest of this small biography, just for clarity. As a complete aside, the first name A Saga here ends for Arthur Donald. He broke with tradition and named one of his four sons Donald Arthur. Just flipped it. Just like his father, Pete joined the National Guard in Anoka, Company B, 3rd Infantry, which was then under the command of his father, Captain A.A. A. Caswell. That summer, the company was tasked with duty at the Mexican border during the height of the Mexican Border War, which was a series of engagements during the Mexican Revolution, returning after nearly six months later in December. It wasn't until the next year, April 6, 1917, when the U.S. declared war on Germany and officially joined World War I. A few months later, now Corporal Pete joined the rest of Company B of the 3rd Infantry and left for Camp Cody to start their long journey to France. He was transferred into the 125th Field Artillery Unit, and then in 1918, he was appointed a midshipman in the U.S. Navy. His graduating class at Anoka must have had an inkling, for in the class prophecy, they thought he would someday be beneath a single palm tree gazing over the landscape wide, with the worldwide travelers Warren, sun-bronzed Pete, 
and Clyde. In the previous clip recorded at Colonial Hall, when the History Center was located in that building, Pete went on to trace his family back to the 1600s. He then talked about military history and how the various weapons in the collection would have worked and functioned. In 1983, just four years before his death at the age of 89, Pete sat down with the Osseo area schools and local Osseo TV station to talk about his life as a federal officer and inventor. This is the story of Arthur Donald Caswell, an amazing Minnesotan whose life has spanned three full careers and a range of history from Pancho Villa to Richard Nixon. I worked in enforcement work from 1931 to 1933 in the Bureau of Probation as investigator. We were raiding stills and speakeasies and uh, catching bootleggers in transit with as much as a thousand gallons of alcohol in a, a truck. Uh, I was in the uh, conspiracy case at Omaha, Nebraska, where there were over 300 defendants. And during that time, uh, uh, several prominent people uh, were killed because they were interfering with what they called the liquor syndicate. He's had a dangerous, interesting, and rewarding life as a U.S. Treasury agent, a military officer, and an inventor businessman. He was born in Minnesota at Princeton in 1898, and by the age of 18 began living a life that was made up of the Caswell family's long tradition of helping your country and his personal contribution of courage and inventiveness. He picked up the nickname Pete in high school and 15 years later became Two-Gun Pete when he was trying to arrest two bootleggers. The men were trying to pour out their illegal alcohol and escape. When Pete saw this, he pulled out both of his undercover guns at the same time to knock them over the head. They were so surprised he was able to save the evidence and get them to jail. In my case, I oftentimes carried two of these detectives, Colt detective specials in two Burns Martin holsters. I could use a gun in those days with either hand with fair accuracy. I was slower with my left hand, but I could shoot about the same score with my left as I could with my right. And in drawing them, you slipped your hand up and just turned it around like that, and you had your your gun ready to fire. His ancestors came to this country from England in the 1630s and were among the first founding settlers along the East Coast. Relative Nathan Caswell joined the Continental Army at the beginning of the Revolutionary War and fought again in the War of 1812. Pete's great-great step-grandfather, John Pride, was in the Minnesota Volunteer Infantry in the Civil War and was sent to protect the nation's first White House. He fought again in the Battle of Gettysburg. His father, Arthur Anson Caswell, and Uncle Irving Caswell, were both in the Minnesota National Guard and saw action in the Spanish-American War in 1898. And in 1916, Pete's military career began as his father's was ending when they were both called to active duty to protect the U.S. border with Mexico from marauders. 
this picture that you see there was when I was enlisted in Company B of the 3rd Minnesota Infantry. We were called out on June 19th for service on the Mexican border during the Pancho Villa days. Pete was again on active duty in World War I and during World War II became commander of an ammunition battalion. He helped lay plans to supply the ammunition, troops, and equipment for the invasion of Normandy, France. And by this time, he'd been promoted to the rank of lieutenant colonel. And all four of his sons have continued the tradition of helping your country by serving in the armed forces. They mark a continuous Caswell family tradition of service since 1776. He returned to civilian life in 1945 as acting district supervisor of the Bureau of Narcotics based in Minneapolis. The cases he worked on ranged from narcotic busts in Anoka County and other parts of Minnesota to Chicago, New York, and California. Many times his life was in danger. There were shootings, chases, and fights. It wasn't glamorous work, but it did result in convictions of many small and top hoods of the day. Organized crime is something, uh, usually, which develops of people that have failed in civil life. Sometimes the environment of a boy or a girl is such that they are thrown against it in their early youth and are unable to get away from that contact. Much time and effort was spent investigating such activities. This diligence was not always rewarded with convictions or seizures, but it had its rewards. I remember one time in Wisconsin, we, when we destroyed the still, we threw the mash out, and the chickens were eating the mash. And uh, I remember in particular one rooster. He became intoxicated, and his feet acted just like an intoxicated man and his red comb would fall on one side of his head as he leaned that way and fall on the other side and went the other way. Even after he retired in 1959 at the age of 60, Pete continued fighting organized crime by consulting on drug law training and enforcement projects and on at least one occasion at the age of 72 went along with the police on a raid. Working for Sheriff Quigger at times, we seized large quantities of narcotic drugs and marijuana. Along with the firearms, the drug peddlers used in coercing people from trying to upset their plans. And in 1972, he was called on as a security consultant to the sheriff of Cleveland, where he worked on the security plans and rode shotgun for President and Mrs. Nixon's motorcade. At that time, it was the longest public tour any president of the U.S. had ever made. All his life, he's been interested in firearms, marksmanship, and gun safety. He joined the National Rifle Association at the age of 16, and today is the oldest living continuous member in the country. Even at the age of 85, Pete keeps busy in his basement workshop, restoring antique American rifles, reloading ammunition, and practicing his marksmanship in his basement firing range. Because of his knowledge in this area, he solved a problem in 1926 that changed the way police, military, and recreational users of firearms learned accuracy and gun safety. He invented the Caswell target carrier. In a shooting range, many people are firing at the same time, and it's dangerous to walk down and get your target. There's a lot of noise and vibration, 
And until then, the target just dangled on a string. Pete Caswell modified the existing string and crank system to automatically lock the target holder at the end of the range so it didn't move around while you were firing and could still be cranked back for scoring. This range was designed by me in 1926. Uh, the features of this target carrier are that it uh, places uh, a metal tube that has a key at the top to stabilize it into a socket which is uh, steadily supported against the steel plate and prevents the side gyration of the target or a vertical uh, movement of the target which enable the scores to greatly improve in indoor range firing. It also can have an extension in here of various heights to satisfy the different positions of prone, sitting, and kneeling. His concept and design, as simple and straightforward as it was, became a needed technical advancement. And since then, 8,000 firing ranges have been built with his ideas and equipment. Electronic controls have been added over the years, but the concepts and standards Pete developed are still in use today. The company has grown from a two-person operation in 1926 to a large manufacturing company in North Minneapolis today. It's managed by the new owner, Ted Bush. Uh, Pete Caswell uh, is a very modest man, and he likes to tell stories, but he doesn't like to call attention to his own importance. For this reason, it's very difficult uh, to get him to talk about the overall technical importance of his developments. I'm sure he recognizes that he almost single-handedly is the person that brought shooting indoor into the highly efficient modern gallery range. The importance of uh, rifle shooting was first brought out World War I because we sent troops into battle in World War I that after the sergeant had loaded their rifle, they could not put a replacing clip of live ammunition in their fire and they were shot easily, uh, being exposed and not being able to fire back. Throughout his three careers, Pete's interests and accomplishments have contributed to the growth of America. And when he retired from law enforcement work, he was cited as a treasury agent in the finest tradition, a good friend and a straight shooter. Read all about it in the Noka County Library Minute. Hello everyone, I'm Diana Nurberg, a librarian for Anoka County Library, and I'm here with your Library Minute. Let's get started with some resources all about Prohibition. First we have Prohibition, a Ken Burns documentary. For those who like to learn visually, check out this Ken Burns documentary about the Prohibition era. The film follows the rise, rule, and fall of the movement to criminalize alcohol. Next, we have The War on Alcohol, Prohibition and the Rise of the American State by Lisa McGurr. In her most recent book, Harvard University history professor Lisa McGurr looks past the surface history of speakeasies and organized crime. She shows how prohibition, the penal code created to bolster it, as well as the activism against it, helped to create the political climate we have today. The well-researched book illustrates how the legacy of prohibition is in many ways still alive today. Finally, we have Twin Cities Prohibition, Minnesota's Blind Pigs and Bootleggers by Elizabeth Johannick. For a local look at what Prohibition was like, check out this title. As noted in the introduction, blind pigs, another word for speakeasies, still operate as legitimate businesses in Minnesota today, 
and serve as the inspiration for the book. The author takes the reader along to some of these locations and tells stories of the people who made them notable. These resources and many more are available and free to check out with a library card at your local library. Call or visit us in person or online for more information. Until next time, happy learning. Get those library cards and reserve your copy today. Direct links to these books and more can be found in the episode show notes at anocacountyhistory.org. Hello? Are you still there? I just wanted to sneak in right at the end. I know I'm supposed to be on vacation, but who do you think edits these anyway? I just wanted to reiterate how cool it is to be listening to somebody that was born 125 years ago. And all thanks to cassette tapes that people were, were recording on. A little warning, though, cassette tapes only last for about 30 years. They start deteriorating. They don't last forever. That means that any cassette tape that was recorded before 1993, that was 30 years ago, is deteriorating every day. So make sure to try to get those digitized. That's one reason why it's a little bit more crackly on some of these older recordings. We do what we can to clean it up, but there's only so much self-taught audio editors can do. Thank you so much, and uh, we'll see everybody next time. If you have a question, want to visit our show notes page for each episode, or would like to share your own story, go to anokacountyhistory.org. Help History 21, the podcast, reach more ears by subscribing and reviewing on your podcast provider. We're all over social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for all those who scroll by. And for our Vault members, you can find special access to podcast extras as well as the latest digital resources at History 21, the Vault, located on our website. Remember, the present is the past of the future.